I'm going to invite you to pray with me about what God's up to, and then uh, we'll take a look at His Word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you've entrusted us with. Uh, For this church to be where we're at is beyond anyone's expectations. And you continue to bless and bless and bless. And it just is being outpoured on us in such a way that we don't know how to respond other than just to keep following you. So that's what we, we ask for, Father. Keep us in that place of humility where we will willingly follow your lead. Help us not to get ahead of you, but to stay right in step. Father, for the, the monies that we bring each week, the way that you use it, we ask that you would bless that as well. They're hard-earned dollars, Father. And some of them are going to make their way overseas to Africa, and some of them are going to make their way overseas to Thailand. And God, you know where these dollars are going to be used, some right here in the metro area, and, and some to be used to heat this facility. We just ask, Father, that you would use it all for the purpose of expanding your kingdom, that you would bring glory and honor to yourself. Thank you for the privilege of being able to look into your word, being able to examine things that you intended to be written down to encourage our hearts and to instruct us. So we take that admonition this morning, Father, as we look at what was written to Titus 2,000 years ago that applies to our life today because you want us to, to look like Jesus. And so we ask that you be with us through the power of your Holy Spirit and guide us as we look at your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to step back with me mentally to 1945. American soldiers were making their way through Nazi Germany. As they worked their way through Nazi Germany, they discovered this thing called concentration camps. Barbed wire fences, people herded in like cattle. Many of the Nazi soldiers, German soldiers, had fled upon the arrival of the Americans. But they left behind, behind the barred walls, many prisoners, prisoners of war. People who had been housed like animals. As they worked from places like Auschwitz onto the others, they discovered that many of the individuals were still hiding in dorms, not sure if it was safe to come outside. As they worked their way from dorm to dorm, they went in one particular men's dorm, And some soldiers found a group of men huddled together. Now the soldiers burst through the door with the sun shining on their face. They were well fed and smiling to find men whose eyes were shallow and sunken and their ribs sticking out because they were so emaciated from the look of death on their face. One particular group of men, they herded outside and put them on trucks to care for them. Some soldiers remained behind to look for others. And as they turned to look at the walls where the men had just been standing, they saw this inscription that I want you to see carved in the wall of one of the dorms. Look first with me at this first phrase. I believe in the sun even when it is not shining. I believe in love even when I am alone. And in God even when he is silent. In the absence of light, those men surrounded by darkness 
had carved in the wall what they believed to be true. Those who faced a greater darkness than most of us will ever face inscribed on a wall what they knew to be real. And no matter how hard the tortures were, their faith could not be shaken. I believe in a God even when He is silent. Those men have long since disappeared into eternity, but their faith remained even to the day where we can put this up on the screen and say, that's inspiring. I believe in a God even when times are hard, even when He's silent. In the midst of the setting that we've been studying, this island in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean called Crete, Paul sent a letter in the same way, if you will, inscribed on the wall about what he knew to be true. And he rolled up his letter and he sent it across the Aegean Sea, across the Mediterranean Sea, and it arrived on this island called Crete for a young man who was pastoring there. His name was Titus. Just to catch you up on the background of where we've been, this situation on Crete was not a pleasant situation for Titus to be in fledgling churches, and there was a lot of animosity, arguing, fighting, people living very ungodly lives. And so we see Paul admonishing Titus about how to instruct the church to be a fragrant aroma on this island. Remember I told you that this island is a place where Roman soldiers went to train, and this is a place where sailors came in on the weekend, bringing in their cargo ships, and this is a place where people were very immature in their faith. And so, so far at this point, we've looked at God's instructions to older men and older women and younger women and younger men last week. Younger men that are here, that were here last week, do you remember what the one admonition to you was? What was the, the one thing you had to remember to do? Oh, come on, I'll preach it again if you don't say it. Be sensible, guys. That's the one thing. Guys met me in the hallway last week after the service and said, this is my one thing. I've got to be sensible. Keep the passions under control. So God's admonition so far to the older men and the older women, the younger men and younger women, and now this morning we're going to look at God's admonition to the workers, those who work in the workforce, because we are seen by those who encounter us every day, who are not part of the kingdom, who are not part of the church. So the emphasis that's coming out of here is the responsibility of workers to serve faithfully. Because we're reflecting the transforming power of God in our lives. Now, the workforce at this period of time was slave labor. The Romans had lots of slaves, and the Greeks had lots of slaves, people who were captured in wars, and that was their workforce. So Paul's writing specifically to the slaves. But in the workforce that you encounter every week, when you go to the office tomorrow, you go to the shop, you go to the garage, you go to the school, students, wherever you encounter your friends at, For most, wherever you go tomorrow is the most significant place that you're going to ever have the opportunity to share Christ. You share it through your life and how you live, the way you encounter people, because they're watching you. As we saw last week, the world around you is watching you whether you know it or not. They're constantly looking at you. So I ask this question, what do they see when they see you? If you grab the notes in the bulletin this morning when you came in, you see that on the right-hand side, I've written five questions for you to evaluate yourself this week of how the world might look at you when they see you. Here's the first one. Do they see a believer who is patient? 
or impatient? Do they see a believer who is kind or uncaring? they see a believer who is selfless or selfish? Do they see a believer who is honest or dishonest? Do they see a believer who is clean or vulgar in our conversations? See, our ultimate purpose in the workplace for working hard is to bring honor to Christ. Yes, we answer to supervisors, those who are over us, but our compensation package is not the praise of men, Because God has already secured our compensation package, the eternal compensation package. Our reward comes from the King of Kings. So we work to honor the King of Kings. This is the way Paul said it when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 6, 5, and 6. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and the sincerity of your heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. I encourage you later today to go back and read Ephesians 6. You'll see that Paul wraps it up in verse 24 by saying, because it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You're not serving men, although you work for men. You're serving Christ ultimately. And there's co-workers every day who are watching you. There's fellow students every day who are watching you, evaluating whether or not you represent the transformed power of Christ in your life, especially if they know that you name the name of Christ, the name of Christ. So I invite you this morning, turn to Titus chapter 2 with me if you haven't already. We're in verse 9 where we left off last week. You'll see it up on the screen as well. If you're new to New Hope, we put it up on the screen, but there's also Bibles in the pew racks in front of you so that you can follow along. Titus chapter 2 and verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, be, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative. So bond slaves is what's known as doulos. The word is doulos in the New Testament. That's what Paul called himself all the time. Here's the definition for it. A slave, literally or figuratively, involuntary or voluntary, a sense of subjection or subservancy. A bond slave, very specifically, was one who voluntarily worked their way up through the ranks earned their freedom, and then resubmitted themselves back to their master and saying, I want to live out the rest of my life in service to your family. A bond slave sometimes were paid, but most times not. You happen to know, as just a matter of trivia, who the first person in Scripture was to call themselves a bond slave? I was surprised when I discovered this. It was Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's talking with an angel. Look with me up on the screen, Luke one thirty-eight. And Mary said, Behold, the doulos, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Paul also called himself a slave of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. So individuals who are free, like Paul, who consider themselves doulos, that's you. You are a doulos to Christ if you have surrendered your life to Him. Now, you may not consider yourself a slave, but Scripture says if you surrendered your life to Christ, He is your master over you and you reflect Him. So it says we're supposed to be subject to our own masters in everything. That's the word that's used there. The word is hupotasso. Look with me at the definition. 
to subordinate or be under obedience, to be subject to or to submit yourself unto. This is a military term, hupotasso. And hupotasso was always used of individuals when they stepped into military service. Now, can you imagine a young man signing up for today's army or a young woman and going to their drill sergeant and saying, I will listen to you and I will obey your commands on the condition that you do the following. You have to be nice to me, okay? You can't envision that, can you? Hupotasso literally means in all circumstances. There's no conditions whatsoever. So hupotasso, the words that's used here, means I'm going to go the extra mile. My behavior is not a conditional given, it's an unconditional given. And I want you to note as we work through this this morning that there are no distinctions here between a Christian supervisor and a non-Christian supervisor, one who is over you. Literally, it's just given that believers will act this way whether they're in the presence of a non-believer or a believer. Because this word is used here for the master. The word master is despotes. This is the definition for it. An absolute ruler, lord, master, with absolute authority. Now, you may immediately picture your boss in your mind when you see the word despotes. You may think of someone who's a lord and master with absolute authority. Most are not that way. But this is the word that's used here. So if bond slaves are compelled to submit themselves according to Scripture, no matter what the conditions, even if there's a despotes over them, how much more should we as free individuals, individuals who have surrendered our life to Christ, reflect the heart of Christ? So here's a question for you. Is it possible to carry out this role of hupotasso from the heart with a grudging attitude? People do it all the time. People say, okay, I'm going to do it, but I don't really want to, with a rebellious heart. So it's possible to do a job grudgingly. So Paul went one further, and he said this, be well-pleasing, not argumentative. To be well-pleasing means you're committed to excellence in the workplace. Literally, that's the way it's rendered. You're committed to excellence in the environment that you're in, whether in school Or on the job, you're committed to excellence because Christ is our ultimate overseer. He's the one who is the ultimate master that we work under. So this word that's used here, not argumentative, is ontologo. I want to show you the definition for it first. Ontologo, to dispute, refuse, contradicting, deny, gainsay, or speaker against, or answer again. So Paul says, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, There's another name for people who are argumentative in the workplace. You know what it is? It's called unemployed. You become too much of a gainsayer, too much of an arguer, pushing against. And in a a situation where slaves were dealt with, they could be punished for their behavior. Uh, One thing you may not know is that many of the slaves that were taken into the Roman Empire were those who were captured in war. And it may be the case that many of them were leaders of other men, educated individuals who had achieved a lot in life, but their country had been conquered, and so they were hauled into Rome, into slavery. So you may have a slave who knows more than his boss about his own job. But even in that setting, Paul is saying, Hupotasso, submit yourself to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not to be ontologo. 
I want to show you a way that this word was used because it has a very specific use in Scripture. There's a time when Paul and Barnabas were working their way through the region where the new churches were popping up and they were preaching. And they were so successful at what they did, people in one particular city asked them to stay an extra week. And so they did. I want you to see this from Acts 13.43. Many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. I love that. Can you imagine the entire metro complex of Lansing gathering in one place to hear the word of the Lord? But that's not the point I wanted to show you. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews, meaning the leaders of the synagogue, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting ontolago. That's the word right there, contradicting. They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. They were jealous of the success of Paul, and so they were speaking against. You probably know of co-workers and students that you go to school with who are jealous of other people's surroundings, and they're ontolago. You know, it's very difficult to keep silent, especially when you're being treated cruelly in a situation. But Paul's saying, even in those circumstances, you're voluntarily accepting subjection to the one who is over you. Because you're reflecting Christ, regardless of how oppressive the situation is. We have the luxury today, if we're employed and we don't like the environment, of leaving our place of employment. We can resign and move on if things are too abusive. These people didn't have that option. And even in that setting, Paul is saying, you've got to submit yourself if you're going to reflect Christ. I had an individual come up to me after the first service and say, yeah, that's easy for you to say, Mark, you don't have a boss. (laughs) I've had bosses, okay? And I've been in work environments that weren't the best in which I had to submit myself under one's leadership. And I know what those circumstances are like. This is not easy stuff we're talking about. That's why Paul etched it in the wall, if you will. He sent the letter all the way across the ocean saying, If you want to reflect Christ, this is what it looks like. Verse 10 says, not pilfering. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. Let me show you the word that's used in Greek for not pilfering. Nasfidzo, to sequestrate for oneself, embezzle, keep back, purloin, misappropriate. We don't use the word sequestrate. We don't use the word purloin. But we do hear the word embezzle, don't we, in our society. In this time, in the first century, it was not uncommon for a slave to be put over an entire household or a family business or perhaps a vineyard and to keep back some of the money for themselves, to grab some silver and hide it away. It was not uncommon because slaves had nothing. And Paul's saying, even in that setting... You can't do this. So what does pilfer look like today? What does it look like in your workplace? Perhaps inflated timesheets? Perhaps inappropriate expense reports? Maybe using company cars for things that were not intended for the company. Maybe using company computers in a way that the company never authorized. That all fits under the definition of pilfer. And this not only damages the employer financially, the greater issue is, and I think that's a big one in itself, the greater issue is 
it damages the witness before the world watching because your coworkers are watching. You hear individuals who all the time rationalize, well, I work really hard. I deserve this. But that's inappropriate because Scripture says that's stealing. It's called pilfering here. So the opposite is the positive side, but rather, but showing all good faith. That's what he wrote. But rather, showing all good faith. Show you can be trusted. Why? Look at the follow-up. So that they will adorn the doctrine of God. For you, if you name the name of Christ, if you are a believer, there is no higher motivation than that because you're living out the transformation in your life. You get to adorn the doctrine of God. Women, you will especially understand that word adorn because the root word for it is cosmeo. We get the basis of the word for cosmetics. The word cosmeo literally means to put things in order. So when an individual was a maker of jewels, who would, who, uh, uh, silver, and would be given an order to p- perhaps create a piece of jewelry for a king or a ruler, he would take the jewels that were given to him that had been purchased and lay them out on a table in front of him and then construct the crown out of silver or gold, whatever they made it out of. And it would be that person's responsibility to determine the order in which the jewels would be placed in the crown to bring out the greatest degree of beauty. That's the action of cosmeo. Cosmeo, cosmetics, meaning to put in orders, to bring symmetry and beauty to the appearance. So we're told here that our actions, church, how we behave before the world, adorn, cosmeo, brings beauty to the doctrine of God. It allows the world to step back and say, there's something remarkable about that individual. Look at the way they carry themselves. It's attractive and it brings people in. How do we do this? Through the submissiveness, through our excellence in work, through our respectful attitude to our employers. Specifically, we should see working as a privilege. Do you know that when God put Adam in the garden, he didn't tell him to work and keep the garden after the fall of man. He put Adam in the garden while Adam was in his perfect state and said, Adam, your responsibility is to tend and work the garden. Work is something that's part of God's creation, and we need to see it as a beautiful thing. It's a gift of God. It's a privilege, even if it doesn't feel like it. So God has placed us in this position to be an influence, and now Paul does the most amazing thing. He, he gives us this understanding of why I've called this tough grace, this entire series, because he floats something out there. It's just like a frisbee hovering out there on a summer day. Look at what he says next in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Why in the world did he insert that statement right there? It's like, bam! I'm talking about your behavior in the world. And all of a sudden, he changes courses really fast on a dime and says, for the grace of God has appeared to all men. Why insert that statement at this point? Because in all these issues, whether older men Older women, whether selecting elders for the church, whether younger men, younger women, whether you are a worker in a difficult environment, the grace of God has saved you. It's appeared to all men. And so it frees you to obey God. It frees you to know God. It frees you to follow after God. That's what grace does in your life. So God's grace, by my definition, is this the unmerited favor by which he delivers us 
from condemnation. God's unmerited favor, what you did not deserve, what I did not deserve, because we cannot save ourselves, church, can we? We absolutely cannot. We cannot save ourselves. God had to bring salvation to us. So he uses this word epiphanao here. Look again at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. So here's this word epiphanao, and we use it at Christmas time. You hear it in the Catholic Church a lot. The epiphany of Jesus Christ. Here's the definition for it. Epiphanao. To shine upon, become literally visible or figuratively known, to appear or give light. God's great mercy sent God's great grace. And it's not just God's, how shall we describe this? It's not just God's personality. This is God's nature and his incarnation. So when we use this word epiphanao, associated with Jesus, meaning literally when Jesus showed up, Grace showed up. God appeared. He shined his salvation on man through the epiphanao. Here's the best way to describe it for you. God associates this, self with, this characteristic with himself so much that when Moses was standing with God on Mount Sinai, he said, I've done all these things for you, God. I've served you. I've led the people out of Egypt. I have your Israelites out here, the people who were in bondage. Now, would you do something for me? Would you show me yourself? I want to see you. I want to know what God looks like. So God said to Moses, very well, I will do this for you, but you cannot look at me because my appearance will kill you because no man can see God and live. So when I pass by Moses, I'm going to put my hand over your face so that you can't look upon me, but you will see my appearance pass by before you. Now this happens, and I'm going to show you this in this verse in Exodus. God passes by, and look what happens. Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord, meaning Yehovah, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God. And what does he say about himself? Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So the moment in time where God is on planet earth and moves in the Shekinah glory past Moses, what does he say? I am gracious and I am merciful because God's grace and mercy go hand in hand. And so Jesus, when he shows up and brings the epiphanao, literally grace incarnate, he personified it in such a spectacular way that we look back on it now and say, that's the extravagant gift of God, the epiphanao, meaning he brought something to light that had previously been revealed. And so now we get to see God's salvation brought into full light. This is the way Paul summed it up for you. I'm just about wrapping this up so we can celebrate communion. Paul focused on this thing called grace when he wrote to Timothy. Look with me at 2 Timothy 1.9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. See, you've done nothing. 
It's nothing you've done to achieve this. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which has been granted us in Christ Jesus. From when? From all eternity. Get that in your head. There was no mistake. Jesus was not God's plan B. God planned this from the very beginning to bring the epiphanao, to bring grace from all eternity. Verse 10, but now has been revealed by the epiphanao of our Savior, Christ Jesus, by the appearing. And what did he do when he appeared? Look, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It's all him. When you come up to these tables in a few minutes or into the back or upstairs and you receive communion this morning, you're only bringing yourself to the table. There's no works. You did not accomplish this in any other way other than just offering yourself and saying, I submit myself. You did it all. You did everything. All I had to do was receive it. Okay, let's go on to verse 12. What did grace do? Verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So you see, grace didn't just redeem you, church. Grace also instructs you, instructing us to deny ungodliness. This grace restructures our thinking. It didn't just redeem us, it transforms our life. It changes your attitude. It changes your appetite. It changes your behavior, your ambition, your actions. What you valued previously is no longer valued because you name the name of Christ. God infuses you and instructs you. This word instruct is the word that's used when parents instruct their children. Look at with me up on the screen. Paduo, to train up a child, to educate by implication to discipline or chasten and teach. So God's grace when it appears in your life, instructs you on how to behave as a godly person. Not just saving you, but instructing you to turn away from all your sinful past. In Jesus, God's grace breaks the dominion of sin over your life. It no longer has that stronghold, and it gives you a new nature so that you can move forward. This is the way Paul wrote about it in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So all of this gives us evidence, proof in our life of one thing, that we're beginning to transform our appearance to look more like Jesus so when the world, when your coworkers in the office see you, they see Jesus. When your family, when your friends see you, they see Jesus because your behavior reflects the master. So this is how Paul, he really cranks it up now, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We look for Jesus Christ to return, do we not? This is our hope, new hope. Okay, you guys are really poor at this. Let me get this again. This is our hope. Is it not new hope? Absolutely it is. This is our hope as believers in Christ. We look to the returning of Jesus Christ. And so we're looking forward. This promise is given. We have this great confidence. Here's a way to remember this. 
This appearing is so guaranteed that Scripture uses the word prosdukomai. Look with me at the definition on the screen. Prosdukomai, figuratively, an endurance. By implication, to await with confidence or patience a certain expectation with, with cherishing. Now picture it this way. If you have a family member who's flying in from overseas, or perhaps they've been away for a long time and they're in another state, You go to the airport to pick them up to meet them. Perhaps they texted you or called you just as their plane was leaving the gate at the other airport saying, I'll see you in a few hours. You've got that message saying that they're coming. Do you go to the airport expecting them to not get off the plane? No, you go with prosdukomai. You know that your family member is going to be coming down that ramp. Eventually, they're going to come down to the luggage area and you get to greet them. That's the way this word is used. It's a confident certainty that Jesus Christ is going to return. Why? Because we learned in Titus chapter 1, our God cannot lie. He promised it and said it's going to happen, so it's going to happen. And it says he's coming in glory, meaning the Shekinah glory of God. When he returns, church, you need to be reminded of this. We will be made to look like him. Let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians 15. You should look at it later today yourself. This is the culmination of your salvation. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality." So your God who saved you brings with him perfection when he comes and you put behind you mortality and you take on immortality. This is why you represent Christ well to the world watching you because you have this hope. And if you ever have a friend or a family member who says, the Bible does not say that Jesus is God, you take them back to Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 because right there it says, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It's in black and white. He is God. So verse 14 ends it, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. If you have your own Bible and you don't mind writing in it, circle the word redeem because here's the Greek word for it. Lutro, redeem, to loosen with a redemption price. Jesus went to the auction block and he saw the slaves and paid the lutro by the sacrifice of his life and freed you from bondage. This word is always used at the auction block of slaves. Jesus redeemed you as one who was living in bondage and broke the binds that held you. Lutro, you have been redeemed. Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority, church. Let no one disregard you. This word disregard means people who talk around you to evade the conversation. Speak it with authority. That's why we celebrate communion with such passion. Because God gave us this privilege to celebrate that He bought you, that He redeemed you. 
If you're new to New Hope, the way we celebrate communion here is that we invite individuals to come up to the tables or the tables in the back, and there'll be men standing at these different tables who, as you walk by the table and pick up the juice and the bread, will say to you, this is the body and the blood of Christ. Take it back with you to your seats and just hold it, and I'll talk you through the rest. But we invite you to bring yourself to the table. I'm going to read you first the instructions in 1 Corinthians 11. These are the instructions that were given to us on how to carry out communion. Communion. 